Good morning, everyone. Welcome to all of you. Welcome also to those who are watching at Wood County Jail online. We're thankful that you're all here gathered together to worship with us. Let's pray and then we'll begin the message. Our dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for the beautiful spirit-led worship in song that we've been led in this morning. We praise you, O Lord, that we can call upon your name in prayer. And now, Lord, we come to this time of worship where we read and proclaim your holy word. And so our prayer this morning, Father, is, is that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your word. And in these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Most of us have heard the phrase, uh, short-term pain, long-term gain. Maybe you're more familiar with uh, no pain, no gain. And we typically hear these phrases in, in situations where someone is committed to strenuous physical training to participate in a sport or simply to get back in shape, and how the intense, sometimes painful, short-term training will be far outweighed, hopefully, by the long-term physical benefits. Now, people choose to endure short-term pain for long-term gain in physical fitness. They choose to do so, but in our lives as Christians, we usually don't choose the sufferings that we encounter. We don't choose cancer or some other terrible disease. We don't choose uh, to lose our job. We would never choose the excruciating pain of losing a spouse or a loved one. And persecuted believers aren't actively seeking out the suffering that they endure. And yet, we all experience, to one degree or another, painful trials and sufferings in our lives. But the encouragement of this passage in Romans chapter 8 is that whatever form or forms our present suffering might take, the future glory we will experience as Christians will far, far outweigh any suffering we have to endure. And that brings us now to the first verse of our passage here in Romans chapter 8. We begin here in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says in effect here, I consider or I am firmly convinced that if weighed on a scale, the glory side would far outweigh the suffering side. And this is not just a, an, an expression of emotion by Paul, but the word consider here is actually an accounting term. And so Paul is calling us here to weigh out the facts. He's saying, in effect, I have weighed out the facts. I have weighed out the truth, and I've weighed it out carefully. And our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But despite this hope of future glory, which we will describe in greater detail in a few minutes, we must not ignore, first of all, the emphasis here on the reality of suffering in this life as Christians, something the New Testament clearly emphasizes. It says, for example, in John 16, 33, the words of Jesus, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace in this world. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, 
I have overcome the world. Now, the word trouble here, which can also be translated tribulation, refers to a situation in our lives that spiritually and emotionally squeezes or even crushes us. It's like it's almost suffocating. It's overwhelming, this sort of trouble that Jesus is referring to here. And so he tells us here that we will experience at times these intense sorts of trials. We could also look at Acts 14 and verse 22 where it says that Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. And interestingly enough, the Greek word for hardship here in Acts 14.22 is the same exact word in the Greek that we saw Jesus use back in John 16, which was translated trouble. Same exact word in the Greek language. So suffering is indeed a reality in our lives as Christians. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so trials come upon us, and, and they are always a little bit unexpected, of course. You know, we don't know when they're coming. But these trials should not really surprise us because the New Testament clearly teaches that that will be the case in the life of the Christian. And there are many reasons why Christians suffer. We live in a fallen world where sin and sickness and death are an ever-present reality. It is a world that opposes and even persecutes Christians, which was something the Roman believers Paul was writing to here in the book of Romans, could definitely relate to. The emperor in Rome at this time was Nero, a particularly evil emperor who executed followers of Jesus Christ in the most horrific of ways. Some of the, the methods of execution he used were crucifixion. Sometimes he would feed believers to wild animals in the Colosseum. And there were times where he'd actually burn believers alive as human torches. And so the knowledge that we await a future glory that far outweighs even the worst of our present suffering would have been tremendously encouraging to these followers of Jesus Christ in Rome as it is to all of us who suffer as his followers. And this all really emphasizes then the necessity of having an eternal perspective on our suffering. And that's what Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Again, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, it's, it's very natural for us when we in, in, endure particular intense trials to be focused on the trials themselves, Right? We can hardly think of anything else. It's all around us. We, we feel surrounded and closed in by that suffering and those trials that we're enduring. And so oftentimes we end up having a very horizontal view of our trials. But what if there's another way? What if there's another way that gets us looking more vertically and gaining an eternal perspective on our trials? And again... Paul gives us that in this passage in Romans 8 by reminding us that God has an eternal purpose 
in every trial that we endure and that we have a glorious eternal future awaiting us. When Paul writes here about the glory that will be revealed in us, he's referring to our future glorification, the resurrection of our bodies, and the glorified bodies we will be given at the time of Christ's return. It says in 1 John, where we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so this gives us then fresh perspective on our suffering. Some of you may have seen the animated Disney movie Ratatouille. How many of you have seen Ratatouille? Where a very talented rat serves ultimately as the chef of a well-known French restaurant. Towards the end of the movie, a very gloomy food critic named Anton Ego comes into the restaurant. And so they're kind of shaking, they're nervous, they're terrified of this guy, and they ask him what he would like to eat. His response was, after reading a lot of overheated puffery about your new cook, you know what I'm craving? A little perspective. That's it. That's what I want. I want perspective. And so they end up serving him a dish, ratatouille, that reminded him of his happy childhood. And warm memories flooded into this man's cold heart. In other words, he was given a fresh perspective on his life. And in the same way, we need a fresh perspective, God's perspective, on our sufferings. Now, Paul gives us even more fresh perspective on our sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Here we read, Paul writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, we can all relate to that, right? Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's that same truth again. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So he's talking about having a vertical perspective on our sufferings rather than a horizontal perspective. And he exhorts us, first of all, here to not lose heart, which is so important as we endure trials. It's so easy for us to lose heart when we're in the midst of a very difficult, difficult period in our lives. And yet, Paul says here, do not lose heart. Keep the faith continue to endure, continue to persevere in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then, in verse 17, he talks about light and momentary troubles or trials. Light and momentary? Well, the only way that Paul could refer to his trials, which included being whipped with 39 lashes three times and being shipwrecked and suffering hunger and thirst and cold and nakedness, the only way he could refer to those things as light and momentary was because he had an eternal perspective on his trials. And that's what we see here in verse 17. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So our trials and afflictions as Christians 
are actually achieving or producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs our suffering. In other words, our suffering actually contributes to the eternal glory we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. So you can make the definite argument here that our sufferings are necessary in order for our eternal glory. And then he describes his eternal perspective even further here in verse 18. Again, we read, he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Again, a a vertical perspective on our trials rather than the horizontal. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Well, as we look ahead then to the glorious hope we have as believers in Jesus Christ, we still live in this fallen world. So we now consider what happens in the meantime, the time between now and our glorification. Well, let's go back to Romans. Paul gives us some answers here, beginning in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Well, in these next several verses, we see what amounts to a chorus of groans. There's three of them all together. And as we just read, we see here, first of all, that the creation groans. In other words, the creation agonizes, while at the same time eagerly anticipating our future redemption and our future glory. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds pretty weird. How is it that the creation groans? Well, often in Scripture, God's creation is personified, isn't it? Like in the Old Testament in Isaiah 55 and verse 12, it says, The trees of the field will clap their hands, which describes the joy creation will experience in the new earth. But in the meantime, creation groans. Why? Well, we find the answer here again in verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin, part of the consequences of the fall was that God placed the creation itself under bondage so that nothing actually functions the way it was originally intended to function. As beautiful as our physical world is, It's not what it was, and it's not what it will be. Rather, as it says here, it is in bondage to decay. You know, things rust. Our 20-year-old van is exhibit A of that. It's just rusting out. Engine runs great, but it's it's, uh, practically dead because of rust. Things rot. Things spoil. Things die. All due to the fall of man into sin. And so as we read here in verse 19, again, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation 
for the children of God to be revealed. J.B. Phillips did a paraphrase of the New Testament, and his version here, his paraphrase of verse 19 reads, the whole creation is on tiptoes to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. That reminds me of the image of a little child eagerly waiting for their mom or dad to return home. It's been a long day. They're waiting for mom and dad. It's already become dark. And so they're standing on their tiptoes, looking out the window for those car lights to come down the road with hope against hope that those lights are actually going to pull into the driveway. And so in the same way, the creation awaits our deliverance at the second coming of Jesus Christ because it too will be liberated. Just like us, it will be set free. (laughs) It will share in our freedom and our liberty that we so long for. But until then, the creation groans, as do we. And that's what it says in verses 23 through 25. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit Believers are born again and dwelt of the Holy Spirit. We groan inwardly, he says, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So we groan in these unredeemed bodies of ours, even as we are, we've been born again, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we've been set free unto obedience to the Lord, yet we still groan in these unredeemed bodies of ours in our struggle with temptation and, and sin and, and sickness and, and disease and aging and the opposition of the world. So we still groan. Paul groaned. We read that in, back in chapter 7 of uh, Romans. Uh, verse 15, first of all, Paul writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. He's lamenting, he's groaning over his condition as a child of God who struggles with sin and temptation. And then verses 24 and 25, What a wretched man I am, the Apostle Paul says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul laments this. He groans even as he waits in eager expectation of future glory. So as Christians, we long for Jesus' return and our future resurrection. We long to be delivered from our unredeemed bodies and from this hostile world, which is really not our home anyway, is it? This world is not our home as believers in Christ. And so again, we need to have an eternal perspective on these things. We need to think like Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob, who saw themselves as foreigners and strangers on the earth. They're just passing through. We need to be ambassadors here, ambassadors for Christ, but we're just foreigners and strangers passing through. This is not our home. 
and God doesn't intend for us to live in that perspective. And so even though we presently suffer and groan, at the same time we patiently wait in faith for our Lord's return and our ultimate deliverance. Well, we mentioned there were three groanings. The third one is found in verses 26 and 27. It says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now the groaning of the Holy Spirit actually takes the form of his interceding and praying for us as he helps us in our weakness, as it says here. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed by the difficulties of life, we don't know what to do, and we don't know how to pray, right? We just don't know what to do. Ever been there? Just don't know. And so the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, We don't know what to do. We can't even put it into words. And so the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness by praying for us or interceding for us through wordless groanings. And while oftentimes we're not sure if we're praying according to the will of God or not, the Holy Spirit's prayers for us are in perfect accord with the will of God. So what an encouragement that is to us as God's children. Theologian Doug Moo said that the Spirit of God effectively prays to the Father on our behalf through the difficulties and uncertainties of our lives here on earth. So, difficult to understand? Yeah, there's a little bit of mystery there, isn't there? It is a little difficult to understand. But take comfort in the fact that while we wait in weakness and in uncertainty for the Lord's return, know that the Holy Spirit who indwells you is continually helping you and interceding on your behalf. Again, that is an awesome, awesome thought. Well, as we've seen so far, as we await our future glory, the creation groans, we groan, the Holy Spirit groans, but we can also take great comfort in what we read next in verse 28. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In the time between our justification and our glorification, God takes every event, every occurrence, every circumstance in our lives, whether we consider them good or bad, And he weaves it all together like a beautiful tapestry or a beautiful quilt for our eternal good and for his ultimate glory. Theologian John Murray said, Not one detail in our lives works ultimately for evil to the people of God. In the end, only good will be their lot. Again, the importance of having an eternal perspective on our trials and on our sufferings. Now I know that some of you may be thinking at this point, well, that's easy for you to say. 
but you have no idea what I've been through or what I'm going through right now. And I get that. And my heart goes out to you. I know that there are people in this congregation, in both services we've had, some people who are not here, who are going through some terrible, terrible trials right now. And my heart and the hearts of our staff go out to you. You know, you might be thinking, well, what ultimate good could there possibly be in this sickness I've been dealing with for years or in the cancer I was diagnosed with or in the loss of my beloved spouse or, or my beloved child or in this broken relationship that I'm now in or the fact that we can't even pay our bills. What ultimate good could possibly come from that? Well, I can say to you, on the authority of the word of God, God who cannot lie, that despite even the most horrific tragedy that may befall you, God will bring his purpose to pass in your life as his child. And he is weaving every single circumstance that you have experienced or you are currently experiencing. He is weaving every single circumstance together for your ultimate good. And it's also encouraging to remember that it's the Holy Spirit's prayers for you and the prayers of our Lord Jesus who always lives to make intercession for us. It is those prayers, those intercessions that have actually carried us through these incredibly painful times. When we don't know how to pray, we try and talk to other people, they don't know what to say, they don't know how to pray. Well, the Holy Spirit is interceding. The Lord Jesus is interceding on our behalf. How do we think we've made it through these times, these difficult times? It's by the intercessory work of our Lord Jesus, the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said, To the child of God, there is no such thing as an accident. He or she travels an appointed way. Accidents may indeed appear to befall him and misfortune stalk his way. But these evils will be so in appearance only because we cannot read the secret script of God's providence. We don't have the entire script. We've just got what God has revealed to us here. We don't know God's sovereign plan and all of the intimate dealings and the reasons why he does things in our lives. But we can know that God has an ultimate plan for us. He's working it out in your life as a follower of Jesus. So despite our present suffering, we deeply yearn for our eternal home and our eternal glory. The Holy Spirit is helping us in our weaknesses, praying for us. And in the meantime, all things work together for good. But how can I be certain of this future glory? And how do I know all of these things will work together for my good? Well, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, our salvation is absolutely 100% secure from eternity past to eternity future. And that is a truly awesome thought. It says in verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. 
those he justified, he also glorified. Now, some of you may be aware of the fact that these two verses have been the subject of much intense theological debate down through the centuries. And the debate centers on the question, is our salvation ultimately dependent upon God's sovereign choice? Or is our salvation ultimately dependent upon man's free will? But let me just say that Paul did not put verses 29 and 30 in here to spark a debate. He put them in here to comfort us as the people of God. They actually serve as an anchor for the promises that have come before and for the great truths that come after. So if I could briefly summarize these two verses for us, I would put it this way. If you're a believer in Christ, your salvation was initiated in God's sovereign plan before the universe was ever created and will culminate in your glorification at the return of Jesus Christ. So, your salvation is, quote-unquote, a done deal in the eyes of a sovereign God, again, from eternity past to eternity future. Well, these two verses are a sermon in and of themselves, obviously. We don't have time for that. And so let me just take a few minutes to look at these two verses. First of all, Paul says here, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now notice here carefully, every word's important in scripture, right? Notice first of all how Paul phrases this, those God foreknew. Those God foreknew. He's not simply saying that God knew something about us, some information before he created the universe, but that he foreknew us. In other words, he knew us beforehand. He knew us before he created the universe. And the word know or knew here was a word used to describe a deeply personal, intimate knowing. Like the knowing of a husband and a wife. That's what he's referring to here. In other words, what he's saying is that God knew us in love Before the foundation of the world. He set his love upon us and chose to save us before the world was ever created. Again, very difficult to understand, very difficult to get our mind around, but we we want to interpret these things uh, correctly. So all who God foreknew, he also predestined. And all who God predestined, he also called. And all who he called, he also Justified. We talked about justification by faith. Justified through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. And all who he justified, he also glorified. Which, notice, is in the past tense, indicating once again that in the eyes of a sovereign, loving, heavenly Father, our salvation is truly, eternally secure from eternity past to eternity future. Which again, assures us that all things work together for good, right? For, for the people of God. And yes, we will share in his eternal glory. Well, as we bring this message to a close, thank you for your wonderful attention. Somebody commenting on this passage said, In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more than one night 
in an inconvenient hotel. Well, I think this individual is trying to convey how our eternal glory will, will far outweigh our present sufferings, right? We've seen that. But my concern is in, in making this statement that they kind of trivialize the suffering that we're enduring right now. Many of you are enduring right now. But hopefully, you, like Paul, as we've gone through this passage today, will be able to weigh out the facts and that you too will be able to say with the Apostle Paul that whatever form or forms our present suffering might take, the future glory we will experience as Christians will far, far outweigh any suffering that we have to endure. Amen? Let's close in prayer.